Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight, uh, I once again am honored to have Douglas Millett, uh, um, systems engineer for the space shuttle on V Radio. Uh, before I introduce Doug and we get to our conversation, I go through a few announcements. Obviously, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, Please visit my website, v hyphen or v minus or v dash radio.org. There you can find archives of other shows like this one, including other interviews with Doug Millette, Peter Joseph, Jock Fresco, Roxanne Meadows, Ben Stewart of Chimatica. Um, lots of great guests here on V Radio, lots of other great topics uh, that you can check out. Um, you can also check out my must see TV list, a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the internet that are pertinent to the various topics that I talk about on my show. Um, in addition to that, uh, I could really use some help on donations this month. They pretty much dropped off at about a quarter of what I needed. Um, I'm going to try to squeeze things together on that end, but, uh, you know, if you like what you're hearing and you enjoy V radio, please consider a donation. So, uh, you can do that by going to my website and clicking the Donate tab, and there you will find uh, you know, you're basically a PayPal widget that you can use to uh, pay off to, you know, to V Radio. Um, that all being said, thanks again for coming on, Doug. Go ahead and reintroduce yourself. You never know when we have new listeners. This is true. Uh, I appreciate you having me on board. Uh, I hope to have a really good conversation about my most recent trip. It's gonna be, it was pretty good. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, I'm Douglas Millett. I'm a systems engineer with the Space Shuttle Program. I'm an author of a book called Turning Point, How Space Exploration and Development Will Determine the Rise or Fall of Humanity. Uh, I went to Switzerland last year at the Co-Initiatives of Change Conference and delivered a lecture on technical sustainability uh, in a way kind of correlating how uh, – Space exploration technology can be largely responsible for our ability to live a more sustainable world. Uh, and then that ties into the conference that I just recently went to. We'll get into that later. Uh, I'm also the maker of the video called Awakening, which is on my YouTube channel, which is TZM for the Zeitgeist Movement, TZM Social Evolution. Awakening is basically a 30-minute quick-hitting film that breaks down kind of why we're in the mess that we're in and and how we're basically at a no-going-back scenario, and it's just time to go forward, which kind of works out well since Peter Joseph's most recent film was like, guys, moving forward. So that kind of tied in well. I also made a video called Our Technical Reality, which is just a compilation of uh, verifiable technologies that basically prove the technical point that we are capable of doing what uh, what we say we can do technically to make things happen. So that's uh, basically it. All right. Well, Doug, um, I've had you as a panelist several times before, um, and I've always enjoyed having you on the show. Um, today, though, we're going to be discussing your recent trip to Liverpool, um, and I have the description of that, actually, to people who want to get the information. If you go to the link within the show, you'll find the website link as to where he went, but go ahead and explain it, Doug. Uh, sure. Um, the conference is called the School for Changemakers. It's uh, effectively kind of a sister organization to the Initiatives of Change that was based in Switzerland. It's because of my lecture in Switzerland that I was able to kind of get to this conference. Um, what had happened was my original intent was to go back to Switzerland this year in August, uh, but situations logistically have come about that I'm going to be moving back to Orlando, Florida around the same time uh, as the conference is going to be taking place. So there's no way I can be in two places at once, at least not yet. Uh, Technology is not there. <laughs> so uh, so I was going to just let it go. And then uh, a friend of mine that uh, is affiliated with the organization said, hey, you know, why don't you come to this conference instead? It's at the end of June. That'll fit your schedule. Uh, and you can have an impact and meet some uh, quality people here. And so I learned about the uh, learned about the conference and, and it fit rather well with what I was going to be talking about because last year at Switzerland, my uh, con conversation was basically about technical capabilities. Uh, this year, I was going to go back and talk about the economic ramifications of those technical capabilities. So I was kind of giving it, giving it in pieces because it can be overwhelming to people when they think about all of it at once. 
And so I went and uh, gave a lecture uh, Saturday morning in Liverpool. Uh, and uh, we can get on how I got there if you if you want to uh, go down that path. Now go ahead. <clears throat> All right. Oh, excuse me <clears throat> for the cough. Uh, let's see. I I really this all happened in a span of about three weeks. Uh, I have to give an amazing amount of congratulations and thank you and appreciation, a lot to love out to all of the people who helped make this happen. Because here's basically how it went down. I found out about two weeks before the conference that they were interested in having me go there. Um, I only emailed them with a, a request to say, hey, would you guys like to have me uh, four weeks ago? It took them about nine days to get back to me, so four, three and a half weeks ago. <clears throat> and um, so they got back to me a little bit on the late end and said, well, yeah, we'd love to have you, but we don't have any funding to get any more speakers here, so you've got to figure out how to pull that one off. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, so I put a I put a notice out on Facebook that said, okay, if you if you like what I do, and you like my delivery method, and you think I'm a good public speaker for the resource based economic model, the the movement in general. And now this wasn't a zeitgeist related thing. I wasn't going as a representative of anybody on this particular uh, case. I was going as me, a systems engineer with the space shuttle program who was advocating the resource based economy just to see if I could do this a slightly different way and start kind of letting go of some of the flags that we tend to fly and just talk about the substance and the information. And um <clears throat> and so that's that's what I did and everybody was like, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um what do you need? And so I basically said I need $1700 in order to get the airplane ticket cuz it's short notice. Airplane tickets are never that cheap, short notice. And so um one thing led to another. I got enough donations to uh, to make it happen. Uh, everything happened in a whirlwind, and I was off to Liverpool. Now, when you got there, I guess uh, you know. Go ahead and I guess take it take a step by step through uh, what took place. Sure. Um, the conference is geared for uh, university students, either those getting ready to go into university or those who are just getting out, maybe going to graduate level. So you're looking at an age demographic of 18 to about 25, 26 is the majority of the audience. Now, there are older up to about 30, 35, um, but mostly younger people. And the School for Changemakers is kind of exactly what it is. These are all kids. I don't want to say kids. These are all young adults, really, because their maturity level is intense. I mean, they're really, really smart, really, really amazing people who um, <clears throat> want to make a change in the world. They see the problems. They're they're very much in tune and awake to a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the Zeitgeist movement. The only difference is they've never really been presented the kind of solution set that I threw at them. And so, um, which is generally the case, you have a lot of activist organizations out there that are trying to put band-aids on the system, and it's like pulling weeds. They keep cutting the weed, uh, you know, two or three inches above the ground, and they keep forgetting that there's a root under there, and the root might be the problem. And so uh, we did a little gardening <laughs> while I was there. <laughs> and uh, and so I showed up. Uh, I got picked up by the local chapter, uh, one of the representatives um, uh, at the uh, for the conference – or not for the conference, my bad – for the Liverpool chapter. And, uh, and so uh, his name is John, and he was uh, amazing. Was able, him and Frank were able to, uh, to help me – hook me up with Ride – to from the airport and back to the airport. Uh John even took me down to Liverpool and we talked a little bit because you know they were pretty geeked uh that you know I was going to be there and doing what I was doing especially since their chapter is relatively small and still growing. And uh then I got to the university it was it was hosted at Liverpool Hope University uh and uh which is uh, pretty pretty well known in that area as a school of higher learning. <clears throat> and so I uh, got there Friday morning, registered in the afternoon, Did uh, got involved with some of the icebreaker stuff. I'm not like your normal speaker at a conference. In fact, I try not to be. My intent at these conferences is to interact with the people that are there, not to be some standoffish, you know, I'm a speaker kind of, you know, special jackass for lack of a better word you know i try i try to integrate with everybody else and hang out and get to know the people and kind of relate to them on a personal level that also helps when you're going to be delivering a speech to them the very next morning because you're going to kind of get to know where they're coming from what are their mindsets and then i can maybe adjust and tweak 
my speech delivery based on the audience because key speech 101 is know your audience, know who you're talking to. So you can make sure you tailor your speech and deliver the information that you want to deliver in the most appropriate way that resonates with them. And so go ahead. Uh, that's actually another thing that Jacques Fresco talks about is that you have to kind of get down to the, the values of the people that you're speaking to. So um, just reinforcing that. Go, But go ahead. Right. Well, exactly. I know your audience is a big deal. You can't just assume that everybody's going to think like you. In fact, that's the dumbest assumption you can make when you're trying to deliver information to somebody is that everybody should just think like you. Um, you know, that's that's not how it works. So you've got to try to relay information in the proper way. So uh, my speech was a Saturday morning. <clears throat> uh, it's actually kind of funny when I how I got that time slot. Um, I had a Skype conversation with one of the coordinators of the event, and after our 30-minute conversation, he was like, wow, I need to put you in the morning on Saturday because you're going to end up spending the whole rest of the weekend talking to people about what you just said. And he was right. <laughs> that's, that's effectively what happened. Um I delivered my speech in the morning, uh, and uh, it was very well received uh, by the other speakers that were there as well. Uh, some of the other speakers were uh, Tommy H uh, Hitchens. He's uh, the founder of iGenius. I don't know if anybody is familiar with that organization, but they are big in the U.K. and Europe and have sponsored hundreds of social entrepreneurs. It's basically a new class of entrepreneur who's idea is to start a business with the primary goal being to do something of social good and a secondary goal of making some money at it. In other words, they're not profit-driven. They're socially driven entrepreneurs. And uh, that's starting to become a, a growing trend around the world. I mean, maybe not so much in the U.S., but over in Europe and even in Asia, social entrepreneurship is basically uh, taking a strong foothold. And this organization is uh, is tantamount to helping that happen. And so they liked what I had to say, and, and when I was done with my speech, I, I literally spent the rest of the weekend just being accosted in a positive way uh, by people who just had many, many questions to go into details because I only had 30 minutes. You can only do so much in 30 minutes, and so uh, I basically gave a high-level overview kind of explaining how a Mars base would work. And then returning all of that capability back to Earth and then effectively saying, so if we can do that there without a system of exchange or a constant consumption of resources, why can't we do something really close to that back on Earth where it's actually a lot easier to live? That's and, actually been an approach that I've taken a lot recently is using the whole spaceship, spaceship Earth concept to try to explain to people that you can't have a capitalist system in a controlled system where there's only so many resources, but – Right, go ahead and finish, and we'll get into that as we as we go. Sure, absolutely. And so uh, throughout the, the rest of the week, I engaged in workshops. I listened to other speakers. I talked to the other speakers. I talked with all the attendees. We hung out. We, we played football, soccer. We played soccer, um, you know, and, and stuff like that. And I had a really good time of getting to know people. And by doing that, I developed a lot of connections. I, am, I must have added about – 30 people to my Facebook, <laughs> you know, a friend, new, new friends mm -hmm. to my Facebook, um, people that I'm going to be able to continue to work with up to and including some of the senior administrators of the university who are interested in having me come back, possibly with connections to speak at Oxford University, with possible connections to speak at universities in Amsterdam and other places uh, throughout Europe. There is a, a possibility to do an academic circuit of lectures related to my topic. That's actually an excellent opportunity. Now, I mean, I guess uh, uh, that all being said, I mean, uh, let, let's go over some, uh, what the word I would use would be, you know, highlights. Uh, what, like, do you, you think of any specific conversations you had that were more memorable than others? Oh, geez, let me think. I Man, I had so many conversations. Um there were people there, there were students who had just recently graduated in economics that ended up coming up to me and going, holy crap, I can't believe I just spent four years doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well. by, by the time I was done explaining how a resource-based economic system would operate uh, in a nutshell and going through some of the basic technologies, a lot of 
a lot of these young people were able to connect the dots. And I think they were able to connect the dots because they're young people, not because they're naive. And, and older people might say that, well, of course, young people are impressionable. I think that's an insult. These are young people who have grown up in the digital age. They are all about open source information, the Internet, communication, Skype, Facebook, Twitter, you know, cell phones that do everything but microwave your food. I mean, I'm talking about a generation, and we know it's pretty obvious, that is more connected than, than, uh, than in any generation before. And and although a lot of a lot of people will cite stupid things that are shared of people being drunk and taking pictures and sharing dumb stuff, there's also a lot of real serious quality stuff that's being shared. A lot of these students travel to different parts of the world. One of them is now getting ready to head over to North Korea to work in villages and learn Korean and start to help them out with the food production stuff or whatever. They do this humanitarian travels. And these are all 19, 20-year-old young adults trying to go out and do something positive for the world. Um, the one thing they had never thought about, though, was a complete system reset, or not even a reset, a complete system switch to to a different mode of operation <clears throat> but you know for for the large part they were very interested in the concept i really didn't have anyone um really object in a severely negative way <clears throat> to to what i was talking about it kind of made sense to them well they're like yeah open source we've got linux and i'm like yeah and another one said, you know, and we've got, you know, Firefox and stuff like that. And, you know, all this, that happens to be software, but, you know, that that's time banking. We ended up having big conversations about time banking and how people will try to do stuff for other people, you know, just by helping out others, kind of a pay it forward scenario. So this is a generation that's growing up with a different mindset. But I have to say one of the most memorable things, and this was really, really cool was we were in our community group. So basically you have this whole conference of 100 people or whatnot. And there are all these different groups. They break everybody down in the groups of like 15 to 20 so that you can get to know each other better. You know, When you're a very large-scale group, it's hard to really get to know everybody uh, or even to get to know a select few people because you're pulled in different directions. But in the, it's very much set up like Switzerland was at the co-conference. They have these community groups where you go in and you share information about each other, about what's going on in the world, and you just have these really nice in-depth conversations and, and try to see if you can work them out. And we're in this room, and, and Tony, who was actually one of the senior administrators that I that I got to know rather well at the university, is one of the professors there, was the leader, the de facto leader of our of our community group. And one of the things he said, he goes, this is amazing. I just want to look at this room. I wish that the media would come in here and look at what's going on. We have Muslims, Christians, Catholics, Jews from different backgrounds of India, different parts of the UK. We have a blonde-haired American. I didn't, you know, and they knew I was an atheist too. So you have a blonde-haired American atheist and all these different people having cordial, polite conversations about very complex discussions. And it was pretty impressive. And I never thought about that as I was sitting there. And then I just kind of looked around the room and I realized, wow, what a diverse group of people still coming together, no matter what their ideologies or their backgrounds are, still coming together to say, there are problems we need to solve. Let's work on a way to get them done. Uh, and what can we do to make it happen? How can we affect change instead of be affected by change? You understand what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So that was that was a pretty key, awesome moment in the conference that I rem will probably remember forever. Now... I guess uh you know again once again let's look at the approach. Uh you use the Mars based example and obviously with your background with the space shuttle program, you know, that kind of gives them a, a context by which you would be speaking from. And I remember that that was kind of like the direction that I've been trying to take with, you know, certain free market types. Yeah, but overall, like when I talk to just the average person, most people are kind of on board with this idea pretty quickly. I think one of the reasons that we get so much resistance is because Peter kind of called out the free market people in the first Zeitgeist movie or the second Zeitgeist movie um, pretty heavily, which, of course, brought them to bear. But the reality is, is the average person, it's, it's not too hard to explain this to. 
Um, at least that's been my experience. But, you know, basically the concept that, you know, if you have a spaceship, you know, you have a limited amount of resources, you have a limited amount of oxygen, you have a limited amount of the basic necessities of life, and you can't really expect to be able to just have somebody own any length of that, any portion of that, um, and not have, you know, an, a ridiculous amount of power over everyone else on the spaceship. The example I usually give is, you know, imagine that somebody owned the oxygen on a spaceship. You know, imagine that somebody owned the, you know, the food sources on the spaceship. You know, and more than that, uh, it kind of puts things into direct, obvious perspective when you consider the fact that in such a situation, for example, the food, you know, is measured out using science. And if someone were to decide that they wanted to eat, say, three times the portion just because they felt like it, then they're dooming two other people to starve at least one day. You know, uh, and I don't think that people realize what where we're at because the Earth is so big and um, we think to, that we can just go on doing this stuff forever, but it's only in a situation like that that I think that people would really get it. I don't, I don't see any form of capitalism lasting too long in a system of limited resources. Oh, absolutely, uh, and and I allude to that uh, when I talk about a Mars base as an option, you know, because you know a Mars base, there's no Seven Eleven or or Walmart down the street where you can resupply. Everything that you do on that in that environment has to be as sustainable as possible, and moreover, the astronauts can't be Farmer Johns and Farmer Janes or maintenance keepers constantly or janitors constantly maintaining their environment or else they'll never be able to go outside and do science and research to try to learn more about the planet. So if you want to make a better use of their time, you're going to have to automate the bejesus out of their environment so that it can effectively run itself and create technical abundance. And that's basically the crux of my speech was technical abundance versus natural abundance. And the time in between is what we have now, uh, is what we had now. You know, Now we're into the technical abundance paradigm. And, uh, and so we're just not using it properly because of the system that we created that was the gap filler. Basically, the gap filler between... You know, natural abundance, where the per Earth provided way more than enough to cover every man, woman, and child on the planet. Quality of life might not have been very high, but the abundance of biological needs to live were there. And then, you know, as populations grew and whatnot, it, it ends up turning into what we have had now. And now we're, we've evolved past that, technically, to a system of technical abundance. And once I broke that down... In the conversation, it got a lot of people thinking. And of course, only having 30 minutes, it opened up the opportunity for a lot of people to come up to me. And I had many, many lunch conversations. <clears throat> While I had huge conversations every lunch, every dinner, <clears throat> every break, <laughs> every <laughs> every moment that I wasn't involved doing something else with the conference, trying to also be an attendee and learn stuff and absorb information from other people, which I did. Um, then, uh, you know, aside from that, I was constantly having conversations about the RBE and how the system would work and some of the technologies involved because people just don't know what we're capable of. Um, not that it's really their fault. It's just it's not very publicized about what our capabilities are. Well, that's um, the system's kind of designed that way, too, because any kind of technology would free mankind from being dependent on the various uh, profit-based systems, such as you know, as we already, we always talk about the obvious example of oil, um, things along that line. That you know, we that the system has a vested interest in continuing to see those technologies you know used because of the fact that it you know the obvious profit uh, that you're not going to have with any kind of <laughs> renewable sources. Um, the idea that people might actually start producing their energy is is repugnant to the system, and particularly the oil companies. That have essentially made their fortunes that way. Now, um, we do have a question from somebody in the chat room. Did you discuss the Zeitgeist movement at all, or just the the resource based economy itself? I did talk about the Zeitgeist movement. I didn't specifically bring it up in the speech itself. I wanted that to be kind of woven in throughout the conversations of the conference and whatnot. So I did talk about the Zeitgeist movement. I did talk about the Venus Project. Uh, not to a very large extent because that alone could be a three-day conference uh, <laughs> on, mm -hmm. on all those topics. But uh, yes, that, that did come up <clears throat> that I am a member of that. And a lot of them actually didn't even know what the Zeitgeist Movement was. Uh, and so 
but they got information from me on, on what its goals are and, and how it, it's basically an awareness-building project. And then at some point, in, in some respects, an activist organization that's just trying to get people to, to behave differently and do things in a different way so we can kind of erode the system. And because um, I don't think uh, I don't think a full on frontal assault on the current socioeconomic paradigm is a very smart way of going about it. You're not going to get very far running up against that wall. But I, I think if we do it smartly, there are there's a bottom up way of of eroding the system and also a top down way. There was a gentleman by the name of Paul. I want to say Morrison, who was a speaker there. He was a whistleblower at a bank called HBOS, H-B-O-S. I forgot what it stands for, but it was a big deal in the United Kingdom that uh, he was the risk assessment person at the bank. His whole job was to tell them when they were going too far. And he found a load of evidence, obviously, prior to the crash, and said, you guys are stretching yourselves. You need to knock it off. And he got fired. And And he even says during the speech, he's like, you know, at the time I was doing this, I thought I was just doing my job. That's what I was there for. And these guys just were so greedy and so arrogant and thought they were invincible that they just shoved me aside, fired me, and put some no-name schmuck in there and just kept doing what they were doing. And then when you know what hit the fan is when he went public and started talking to the media and brought off all of his photocopied records and documents because he wasn't about to let them just get away with screwing over people. And this bank executive ended up uh, resigning and all this other stuff. But now he's a big proponent of completely overhauling the banking industry. Uh, now, I know a lot of people will say, well, that's irrelevant. What difference does it make? Money is pointless, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, in the future that will be the case. But right now I think a good top-down approach is to let them – Windle themselves down through regulations or whatever, while the rest of us start eroding the system from the bottom up, creating more sustainable infrastructure that bypasses the banks, and they'll get smaller, and the world will get bigger per se, and the next thing you know, we flip. Uh, so that's there was kind of a pragmatic, realistic way of looking at how to tackle the problem on a very large scale. Now it looks like we might have a caller. I'm going to go ahead. I'm using the new switchboard. Uh, thing so it doesn't have a. I don't know if it uses the same hand signal that it did previously, but it'll bring them on. Um, caller for the two one five area code. You're on the air. Oh, well they hung up, so I guess that would be a no. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, probably. Um, but anyway, um, as we were saying, um, in regards to you know, you said that you had a lot of people talk to you about it. Now, I mean. It's actually kind of good to me that they hadn't heard of it yet because that means that you're reaching new people. Um, right. you know, we've had a lot of preaching to the choir situations in the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project, and I think it's great that you're meeting new people. Um, you know, I mean, I, I got to tell you, I wish I could go to one of these things with you. It sounds like it was a you know a great meeting of the minds and a great opportunity to to speak to people who you know really actually care about the world. It's one of the reasons why I say to people that. We need to go to these activist groups that are already interested and present them with our ideas, uh, groups like the Green Party in some countries, because it's different in every one, uh, you know, groups like different environmental, you know, groups and such of that, you know, to, to try to share with them our solutions. Because a lot of them are very big on, you know, exposing problems, but they don't have any solutions. And I think that if they were presented our ideas, then they probably would. Um now, I guess that would be kind of a point. Uh, did you? I mean, we, we talked a little bit about anything specific. You said you had, eco, you know, eco, you know, economical students that came up to you. Uh, was there any other kind of like uh, conversations that kind of stood out? Maybe anybody who was initially negative about it who changed their mind? Now, most of them had never thought about uprooting the system in the way I had mentioned. It was actually interesting that I ran into that scenario. I kind of figured, I, I assumed going into this that I would find a couple of people, even the professors that were there might come at me, you know, was what I was talking about or, or what I was trying to say. But to be perfectly honest, it was, it, and I probably say this is rare, I didn't have a lot of consternation against what I was, what I was talking about. A lot of people well, I mean, you got the typical things like, wow, the transition is always – it's so funny <laughs> how everybody thinks they're independently minded, but they all ask or say the 
same things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, even though they don't even know each other. I, the same exact questions that people online ask, that people uh, in Houston asked when I gave my Houston lecture, that people in Switzerland, everybody asked the same questions. Um, so how how independent really are you? We're interdependent, not so independent. So, um, but anyway... I got a lot of the standard questions of how would you pull this off? What are what are some of the the best ways? And in fact, one of the conversations I had was with, uh, or some of the conversations I had were with the uh, the people from iGenius because they're doing the social entrepreneurship uh, path of of how to do business. And I actually think that is a fantastic way of eroding the system. If you've got people whose primary goal is to do something socially positive. And then their secondary goal is making money. In other words, they're not just strictly dollar sign driven. Then that at least, that's a step in the right direction towards getting the mindset to shift off of money first, everything else second. And, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I don't know where anybody thinks that that the world's just going to instantly flip all of a sudden. It's going to take this systematic, long-term process of changing the mindset of how we do operations on this planet. Now, the paranoid people will jump up and say, well, we've only got five years before the world explodes. Well, then we're fucked. Oh, sorry. <laughs> then we're <laughs> Then we're screwed because, you know, nothing's going to change in five years. It, it took 7,000 years for the monetary system to effectively go from gift economy, trade and barter, all the way up to what we have now. To think that we're going to switch it in 20 years is kind of comical. Uh, now, I know we have technology on our side in the fact that we can do a lot of these things quickly. Get rapid production of food, for example, the business that I'm going to try to start when I finally stop playing with the space shuttle. That is actually, by definition, a social entrepreneurship business, what I'm trying to do. I don't care so much about the profit. I'm trying to feed the world, and I'm trying to do it in a high-tech, sustainable way so that these buildings can be put anywhere on the planet and feed anyone, and you just drop a certain number of them down, and you can cover the needs of an entire town or you put enough of them down, you can do an entire city, or they can be scaled up. And so once I get to that point, you know, and, and in working in this workshop that I did with the social entrepreneurs, they had a workshop there, I ended up interfacing my, my team, uh, ended up giving me good ideas that I can implement into into the business model, and I learned some things. And I think social entrepreneurship is one of many paths to take because there isn't just one path to fixing the mess that's on this planet. You have to have, uh, what did Tony say? He said it fantastically. He says you have your visionaries, then you have your activists, then you have your pragmatists, and then you have uh, your your reflectors, which basically bounce everything back and you kind of start over again. And you kind of go through this circle and that's how you start to affect the change. And you need a little bit of everybody. You need the realist to knock the visionaries back down to reality. Because they just want to go straight to the finish line because they have these lofty goals where you just can't get there instantly. So then you've got other people that are bringing everything together and and kind of making it happen in a realistic way. And so uh, there was a lot of information that I garnered from, from this trip um, that once, I, once the video comes out of my lecture, which it was recorded um, – Unfortunately, it wasn't recorded by the person who said they were going to be able to do it because they couldn't get to the conference last minute. So uh, one of the attendees of the conference named Paul happened to have this really nice still shot camera, but it has HD video capability. It's one of those new ones. And uh, he recorded it for me, and he's just got to upload it to his computer and send it to me. Um, that might take a couple of days or whatever, so I don't know exactly when I'm going to get my lecture but I'm going to get that up online, and once I get it up online, I'm going to try and see about writing up uh, a report or something to that effect uh, to kind of talk about some of the things that I learned, some of the things that I'm discussing here with you. Now, we talked about, obviously, you know, it sounds like you did make a lot of great connections, especially if you can, you know, get into the other universities you were talking about, and those are all, you know, opportunities that we've been looking for for some time. I'm actually very optimistic. I'm glad that you had the positive reaction that you did. 
particularly in the circles that you've been touching in, you know, these are the kinds of people that we need to reach. And it's definitely a, a good morale booster in the long run when you think about it. And I, I think that, for example, uh, uh, and I realized that I was guilty of this myself, but they, I think it was because I came from that background, I felt compelled to try to, quote unquote, help people who were in it. But uh, we spend a lot of time on the free market types. And I, I think that in the long run, that's probably a waste of energy because they don't really make up a very large percentage of the population anyway. And when you try to argue with them, you kind of hit some dogmatic walls, you know, that are just, you end up wasting so much energy trying to talk to them. I remember, you know, talking to Brandy Hume about that a little bit because she did go through a lot of effort to argue with that Jacob Spiney guy or whatever his name was, you know. Um, and I talked to Stefan Molyneux on the show with a, you know, 102 degree fever and a pounding sinus headache. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad that I, you know, networked with some of these people. But, you know, it seems to me that we need to start moving into other social paradigms and look for, you know, more open-minded people rather than spending all of our time beating our head against the the free market wall. Um, and I guess your experience there would kind of would kind of back that up. I mean, it, you obviously had less resistance even than you did at that humanist meeting that you were part of. Right. Exactly. And and I think, <clears throat> and I've said this many times before, we need to get off the computer. Stop being a cyber activist and get out there and start talking to real people because real people aren't online all day, you know, going through their conspiracy theory Bibles. They're not online all day constantly trying to prop up their dogma. They're just regular people out there trying to live their lives. And if you can find ways to reach them in the real world by going to conferences or doing the town hall kind of thing that you know uh, Peter did in L.A. would be a, a good one. Um, you try to do a university circuit. Get into academia um, and try to change the system from the inside out. I mean how people are taught is a huge indicator of what the future is going to hold. And so if we can get things to change there and get the minds of the young people that are there to think about the world in a different way, then we will begin increasing that erosion process. Um, and so that's really – that's what it takes is people got to get off the damn computer and get out there and start doing stuff in the real world and start touching base with real people. Well, I certainly don't disagree with you there. Um, now, let me go ahead and uh, there's another question here. I'm going to see if I can put this out right. But uh, Aaron Zimmerman in the chat room says, assuming a stable population growth pattern, can a project such as the Venus Project use a liquid fluoride thorium reactor? Can this be used in reducing the waste from the dirty reactors of the past, giving double benefits or should we be looking into other means of energy production for the project? Nice, Aaron. Trying to go all time. I've been debating Aaron all day online <laughs> <laughs> on Facebook. Uh, I think that particular energy form of technology is irrelevant if you actually look at a holistic system of wind, wave, tidal, geothermal, etc., all used in concert. In fact, I drew this out in one of the conversations I had with some of the people at the conference. I kind of drew a map of a little city grid, little houses, and I said, now, what we have now is we have one power plant trying to feed this grid, and everybody, it's all load sharing from a single source. But what we don't do is put the solar and the wind panels and the photovoltaic windows and everything in every single building. So let every single building be its own power source if it can be, or at least supplement 70% of its power needs on its own, because then at that point you can do load sharing. You can do active load sharing. Say a building is needing a higher demand, but there's another building down the street that's in low load capacity because everybody's gone home and all the, wind, all the lights are off, then it's still generating power. So you just siphon that off to different facilities and you just do load sharing. It doesn't take that much to establish an engineering parameter base to where you know what every building is going to need. And if you actually truly use low energy consumption systems in the building, for example, LED lights instead of fluorescent lights or incandescent lights, if you use low watt LEDs, they're still wicked bright. They can light up the room just like anything else, but they consume 50 to 75% less power. And so your energy load goes down. So there is no single source option 
whether it's using helium-3 or thorium reactors or inventing cold fusion. Um, Cold fusion would be actually kind of nice, but I don't see that happening anytime soon yet. Uh, So not saying it's not possible, but not yet. So in the meantime, until we do find this holy grail energy source that taps the vacuum of the universe or something like that, then we do have plenty of other systems that can be implemented in sync with each other, not just one, but all of them working in concert, uh, much like an orchestra. You know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is going to sound like crap if it's just done with one violin. It's not going to be as powerful, but if you do it with the entire orchestra, well, that's one hell of a song. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's kind of what I said to him in the chat room. I said that we need to get out of energy that produces waste in the first place, um, you know, rather than trying to reprocess anything, you know, because that takes energy in of itself. Um, and now we have another question: Were there any individuals that Doug met that should be considered supportive contacts? Any that we should reach out to in the United Kingdom for ongoing relationship communications and mutual support here in the United Kingdom? Um. I get if you're talking from a movement perspective, I would say not yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still building bridges. You guys have to remember that I didn't go there under the flag of any movement, um, and I kind of did that on purpose because I do believe that in some cases uh, the movement can be viewed poorly uh, because of the history, because of Zeitgeist One, you know, and its obvious consternation. You got to realize the university that I went to is a religious university. And, you know, if I go in there waving the zeitgeist flag with all the baggage of anti-religion that seems that is attached to it, uh, then that can be a, a barrier. And I don't want to bring barriers with me. I want to talk about the ideas. Now, with that said, um, in working with uh, getting in the door and having the conversations and talking to Tony – who was the senior administrator who works at the university who helped make this conference happen. He's one of the key players involved with the School of Changemakers as an entity. Uh, He wants to work with me on setting up a sister organization when I move back to Florida at my alma mater at the University of Central Florida. So I can set up a school for changemakers on the U.S. side, and we can do an exchange program. And by the way, he totally loved what I was talking about about the resource-based economic system, about switching over. You know, He also has some of the same similar questions of, well, it's going to be fun trying to get there, but he likes the idea, and you know, he's, he's all for it. And so if we can set up this bridge, this, this connection between both sides of the pond and also start to develop those networks at that university and other universities, then that will start the snowball. But right now we're at a snowflake. We're not at a snowball. And so I would implore people to have a little bit of patience. Um, One thing I am going to do is um, the Liverpool Zeitgeist chapter uh, is is going to work with uh, uh, me and working with Tony in setting up like a Zeitgeist uh, chapter at the university, like a student group. So that would be one way to get in there. Um, But that's basically where we're at right now. Okay. Well, that's still a step in the right direction. Um, so uh, I guess now that you know we, we've talked a little bit about that, uh, we, we come back to um, – actually, ironically, I had somebody – this is kind of only – this is more related to your, your space stuff, um, and it's not really related to the Zeitgeist movement. But uh, in regards to the, the prototypes that they're working on uh, to replace the space shuttle, do you know anything about them? Uh, well, are you talking about uh, CC Dev and stuff like that, or, or I don't even know if you know the names of them. There are some things that are on the books. Uh, Boeing got a contract recently uh, to work with uh, kind of space shuttle derived or something to that effect. Um, they're still paper rockets right now, and none of them look like I don't know how they're going to get the funding to make any of it happen. Um, you know, I'd like to see that they do build shuttle 2.0, but it's not really going to be shuttle. It's still going to be capsules um, on rockets. So there's really not a whole lot coming down the pike that inspires me to put it that way. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It was just, it was kind of a question in regards to that. Um, and I, I, the other question always comes up is, you know, do we, are we looking at any kind of like Mars or, uh, you know, space or new moon travel that, you know, they've been talking about for the longest time, uh, do you think that's realistic or what? 
I know that's what NASA wants to do. The reason why they have handed over LEO operations, low Earth orbit operations, to the space stations, to the space station specifically, to commercial companies like SpaceX or Orbital Sciences, is because they wanted to get off of spending their money being a taxi service back and forth to the ISS and use their resources to build bigger, fatter, larger scale rockets to go out to Mars and do, or go to an asteroid and, and do bigger and better things, which I think is something they should have done decades ago. Well, at least a decade ago, not decades, but at least a decade ago. Um, and handed off the sh- they should have handed off the shuttle completely to back to Boeing because Boeing is the one that built the space shuttle. Well, uh, a different company did and Boeing bought them. Uh, but anyway, the point being that you know that should have already happened, and NASA should have been using its budget to go to the to the Mars or whatever and put humans on that kind of a path. Whether or not they're actually going to get it done, I doubt it, and I doubt it because politics rules the roost when it comes to the federal space program, and unfortunately, none of those people up there are like a John F. Kennedy. None of them have a vision large, longer than their four-year term or their two-year re-election cycle or whatever the case may be. And that's as far as they go, and none of them will commit to something that will take 10 to 15 years to accomplish. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Going to send people to Mars is a 10 to 15-year long-term budgeted program. And there's just not the political will to commit themselves to something that isn't going to benefit them immediately for the next election. And that's how everybody thinks because that's how they get their funding and that's how they maintain their authority and position. It's a complete – the entire system has degraded to the point now to where it is jemmy and ineffectual. Now, I guess, you know, that was – a lot of that, you know, arguably came from the fact that, you know, that we have the Cold War. We needed to get there, quote-unquote, before the Russians did uh, for any number of different reasons they could have come up with. I agree with uh, that too. You know, um, I mean, well, I mean, if you've watched the recent Transformers movie, it was because there was Autobot technology on the moon and we had to get over there. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, any of those kinds of silly things aside, you know, uh, there was, I guess, the concern that Russia might try to claim the moon as its own property or any number of other things that I've heard. But um, I guess in the long run, maybe, you know, in theory, if we could start working on. Uh, um, we could start working on technology that's going to help us, you know, here on Earth with any luck, you know. And I, and I still, I, you know, I, I told you this already. You know, I wanted to be an astronaut when I, when I was astronaut when I was a kid. Um, but in the long run, I, you know, I do also understand some of Jock's points about concerns about weapons in space and uh, things along that line. Uh, particularly if we ever end up like, you know, running into any other indigenous peoples and treating them, you know, as you saw in the movie Avatar. We got a long way off before we have to worry about anything like that, but I'm hoping that we get out of this uh, capitalist paradigm before we end up in the situation where our technology is good enough to go and start causing problems in other galaxies. Yeah, well, uh, this is where actually Jacques and I disagree on the space exploration aspect because you know we don't need weapons in space to be crappy to each other. It's pretty obvious that we're doing a good job of it now, and so uh, you can kill people through economics, and that's exactly what's happening. So weapons in space is irrelevant. I mean, first of all, we don't have any. There's enough nuclear weapons on the planet anyway. You don't even need to go through space to blow up the world. So what is a weapon in space going to achieve? Really, nothing. Nothing any other nation couldn't respond to. So that argument doesn't hold any water when you look at the unfortunate misuse of technology for missiles, bombs, and guns that we have on this planet, there's nothing you're going to really build in space. Nobody's going to build a fragging Death Star. First of all, there's not enough national, natural resources around to make something like that happen. You'd have to suck up the entire asteroid belt to mine off enough iron to do something like that. So, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's a realistic notion. What space exploration gives us in its benefits far outweighs what some stupid government would try to do militaristically in space because there's you got to remember the, the energy and the cost to do stuff in space in today's economic paradigm is huge. When you can just build a little missile and shoot it off at some third world nation and blow up a village for you know a, a thousandth of the cost. So what do you think a stupid military regime is going to do? Well, they're going to take the cheapest option, economic stupid, right? 
So why would they spend that much money on space bombs? It makes no sense. It wouldn't be feasible. But what we can get for space exploration by trying to go send astronauts to the moon to do science and research is you end up having to develop a whole host of technologies and perfect a whole host of technologies that can be turned right around and used on Earth to better the lives of people. I mean, hell, 90% of the technologies that Jacques advocates for the implementation of the cities and the, and the resource-based economy came from space exploration development. So you can't bite the hand that feeds you that made the whole system probable in the first place. That's that's a very fair point. I, I see where you're coming from there. Um, uh, now, I, I have an interesting question here in the last ten minutes or so we have of this particular broadcast to see if we can tackle it. But uh, we're going to economical issues here. The person says, what can we learn from the failure of centrally planned economies in history um, now, to tell the listeners this, aside from the fact also just to get this out of the way, I'm going to have Ben Stewart from Chimatic and Esoteric Agendas um, along with his band on here pretty soon, Hyrosonic, to talk about the fact that they will, in fact, be at the Zeitgeist Media Festival. You guys should check them out, and that will be on a, probably my next episode of B-Radio. Um, in addition to that, I have a whole series of shows that we are doing about Project Cybersyn, and I'm hoping I can have you as a panelist on some of those shows, uh, Doug. I don't know if you're – I showed you a little bit about it, but uh, it was the work of Stafford Beer setting up a centrally planned economic computer-driven system that allowed for the sharing of information that uh, uh, Mises and Hayek and people like that said could never happen. This was in um, Brazil, right? Or something? Yeah. No, it was in uh, Chile, and Chile, it was using yeah, like 70s computer right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> technology. And they managed to pull it off pretty well. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but they were doing it with telex machines. Uh, right. there's, no, you know, there's no reason why we can't. And that was well before we had the kind of information technology we already have. Uh, as Peter pointed out also, uh, the major corporations are already using this kind of central hub technology to move information in the vast scales necessary for them to even work as you know, the ma that massive mega corporations that they are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I guess when it comes to failures of centrally planned economies, I think it all pretty much comes down to the lack of technology in comparison. What would you say? I would say that's part of it. I'd say another part of it is that a lot of centrally planned technologies from the past still were dominated by human labor for income to survive or a human labor trade, whereas uh, in the current – if you use technology – properly, you end up taking people out of the loop for a lot of that, where you're not dependent on another person, so there's no way to game the system for an advantage. Um, so you end up producing that. And I'd like to know what people's definition of centrally planned is, uh, because there's a lot of centralized stuff that goes on in the world today that people love. They like their central air conditioning. There's no problem with that centrally planned system. You know, There would be no problem with a centrally planned grid electronics or electric grid if every building was its own purveyor of energy and it was a load sharing paradigm to where it would shift and move and ebb and flow accordingly to provide everybody to provide the system it's a systems engineering issue that would make everything work on a, an automatic scale where it would take microseconds for the system to recognize a deficiency or recognize a surplus and shift the energy accordingly so what what's their definition of centrally planned? People, I think, have this notion in their head that people are telling them what to do, that they're only allowed to have this or allowed to have that. Well, <clears throat> there are certain allowances that are, you know, reasonable and unreasonable. No single person needs a 10,000-square-foot house. I don't care how freaking special you think you are. You don't need a 10,000-square-foot gigantic waste of space house. Now, people are programmed today to think that that is an entitlement they deserve because of success and materialism and he who has the most toys at the end dies and wins the game and crap, crap, crap like that. It's Monopoly 101. But that's a neurosis. That's a psychotic mentality to think that you have to have this huge freaking house as some status symbol when the odds are you probably don't even remember where half the closets are. So, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And so we need to get to more realistic. Now, I'm also not saying that people should be regulated to 500-square-foot apartments. That's going the opposite direction. That's just as stupid going the other way. There are reasonable allowances 
that work for family sizes and demographics as where you are and how much land is available and things like that. It's not that difficult to figure out. Uh, so it's not so much that somebody is planning and telling you where to go or what to do. The only thing the system does is provide access and abundance of what you need to survive. So if it's a bad idea to have a whole bunch of automated farming facilities in the city that provide 25% more food than people need, and then the rest of it can be converted into waste biomass or something like that that can be used for energy purposes or something else, or feeding the livestock or whatever the case may be. If that's bad, then, well, too bad. I think that's something we should do anyway. In fact, most reasonable people wouldn't mind living in a city that provided 25% more food than the entire population needed. And if you do that around the entire planet, hunger is gone. Same idea with electricity. Same idea with transport access, especially when you look at things that are happening now, like Nevada passing the law that allows the Google automated car to be able to do what it needs to do. That's a pretty big deal. That kind of went under the radar. I don't know how many people know about that. Do you know about that? Go ahead and re go ahead and re-explain it in the five minutes we have left. All right. Well, Google has this you know fully automated car that drives itself. It's something that we talk a lot about in the movement, right? You know, why should I? drive my car around uh, when I'm not as efficient as a computer that can analyze its surroundings a thousand times a second, use GPS tracking, an active radar system, and the cars can talk to each other so that they'll never hit each other. Uh, So why put a human behind the wheel as the first line of defense? The human might be the second or third line of defense in case something really crazy happens, like an earthquake while you're driving or some unforeseen circumstance that the system can't handle, that a human might be better at. But for the most part, let the car drive itself. Well, Nevada just recently passed a law that basically said it's cool to have cars that drive themselves. (laughs) Right. And so that's a pretty big deal. That's part of the paradigm shift, right? That's part of thinking in a different way. Now if you've got all these electric cars, like, for example, the Nissan Leaf just recently scaled Pikes Peak, uh, there was another electric car that actually got banned from competing in a race competition because even though they were in the same class of cars as everybody else, their electric car was completely destroying all of the standard competition. And so they were banned from being allowed to be in the race system um, because they were too good as an electric car or were they a hybrid? I think they were a hybrid. I'm just going off the top of my head. But my point is the shift is happening. Shift happens. Get used to it (laughs) because it's coming whether people want it or not. They can try to attach any kind of label they want to it because they're afraid, and that's what they want to lean on to try and label and attack something. But in all honesty, it's a bunch of nonsense. Your computer is a centralized system, and if it wasn't for bad Microsoft software, the computer will run just fine. You know, (laughs) I'm kind of picking on Microsoft, but anyway. There are a lot of centralized systems that go on. I'll give a perfect example. People ask, how would the resource-based economy work? I'll try to do this really quick. In fact, I won't even have to describe it. People should just be able to intellectually wrap their heads around it. How in the hell does FedEx manage the hundreds of thousands of packages and things that it has to ship all around the world on a very tight schedule to get things where they need to go when they're supposed to be there? I guarantee you it's not a whole bunch of monkeys sitting in a room making it happen. They used a very complex, very specialized computer interface system that works globally, that tracks and manages all of their trucks, all of their carriers, all of their airplanes, all of the trains, everything that transports anything anywhere. That is the ultimate in resource management system. Their system is managed, their resource being the packages that they deliver, is managed by a very complex system, and they do a pretty darn good job of it, and so does UPS. Now, why can't you adopt that same already existent kind of system to how a city would operate in managing the resources of that region for the benefit of all the people? But instead of delivering packages, it's also delivering food, energy, transport, access, etc. That's how the system would operate. You know, that's an excellent example, actually, and when you study the various things in regards to the quote-unquote economic calculation problem that is like a sacred cow of the free market Austrian school people, because Misi said, well, you'll never be able to get the information, you'll never be able to figure out how to distribute things, 
Amazon.com is currently messing with Walmart, as in Walmart is now complaining and saying that it can't compete with the computer technology we're using in the Internet right now uh, that is making even just going to the store obsolete. Amen. So, so in any case, we're now down to the last minute. Thank you again, Doug, for being on. Um, and I ho- as I said, I hope that you can be a panelist in our future shows about cybernated systems and Project CyberSyn. Um, and to everybody who's listening, uh, please consider a donation at vradio.org. I could really use the help. Uh, we're way behind on donations this month. In fact, the month is almost over. Uh, look forward to my next show in regards to uh, Harrisonic and Ben Stewart from Chimatica Esoteric Agenda and his band. They will be at the Zeitgeist Media Festival coming up soon, and they're ready to talk about that. Uh, thanks again, Doug. Go ahead and give a URL so that people will know where to get your book. Sure, it's on lulu.com, and if you just Google or type in my name in the search, Douglas Millette or Turning Point, it will pop up. All right, excellent. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in tonight, and uh, I'm going to leave you with some parting words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. Please visit my website, v-radio.org. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.